The Art Dealer Diaries are brought to you by Medicine Man Gallery, located for over 26 years in Tucson, Arizona, specializing in antique Native American art, early Western art, including the famed Maynard Dixon, as well as modern art. You can find everything online at medicinemangallery.com. There's over 6,000 objects to select from. Also, the Charles Bloom Murder Mystery Series, written by yours truly, me, Mark Sublett. There's eight books in the series. And they follow the protagonist Charles Bloom through all the intrigue of the art world set in Santa Fe and the Navajo Nation. These can be found on Audible, eBooks, Amazon, and of course, the gallery at medicinemangallery.com. Had John Coleman on today. He is such a deep, interesting human being. You know, he didn't start out as an artist, even though he knew he had this innate sense to, of drawing and uh, did these uh, drawings of famous people when he was 15, 16 years old in L.A. And he had to go through the process of finding that artistic voice, which isn't always an easy process to do. His was one of success as a business person, but not getting to the place where he really is going to be known for and is known for, which is as a world-class sculptor of Native American subject matter and painting. And let me tell you, his paintings are at another level. He really is quite gifted in this field and may ultimately be known as that, as this great uh, painter. But it's a fun ride, and if you're an artist out there and you're going, I don't know, you know, I want to be an artist, but do I have what it takes? Well, maybe if you listen to this podcast, you'll see what it takes, and quite frankly, it takes a lot of effort and emotional pull to become that person, and John, you know, he put it all together, so great podcast. I really enjoyed it. We have John Coleman here. We're getting set up. You know, we're, we've been dealing with trying to get the lights right and people's uh, reflection off the glasses and, you know, the fun of technology in the 21st century. But I will say it's very nice to be able to sit down with you in your studio or in your home, maybe this yeah. and and have a discussion and not have to, uh, you know, leave the privacy of your own uh, adobe. Yeah, or, or not have to get too cleaned up. You know, yeah, that's true too. Oh, if you saw my office here, it is absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Yeah, I'll give you yeah. a quick I've got paintings everywhere, oh, drawings, oh, yeah. well, stuff all over well, the place, but it looks very clean. <laughs> yeah, well, you, well, you're working, so am I. Yeah, this is my studio, this is my yeah. library over here, and my you know, whatever. You know, I'm like you, you know, I've got a lot of little, little, little uh, art, artifacts. Some of them are real, you know, some of them are uh, re- created, uh, you know, like movie set stuff for my, for my models. Well, that's critical, right? To have those for you to be able to do what you want to do, right? Well, it's everything. Yeah, it's everything. Um, uh, part of what I do, because I, I am a history uh, artist, uh, it, it's important that uh, it's like I'm making a movie, cast my, my players, I have to dress them, and then I put, put the whole storyline together, and then I either sculpt it or I paint it. Um, there's a little resistance in my mind about the difference between art and actually replicating something. Cause I don't think in terms of replication, but I do think in terms of uh, respect for the subject matter. Uh, I'm an outsider. I'm not a native American. And of course it's a touchy subject, it, you know, guys like me that are artists come in and they can hijack someone else's culture. And, you know, I certainly don't want to do that. So 
uh, you got pushback at all because of that? I mean, just because? No, of- no, no, not really. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, and actually, it's been uh, over 25 years now. Uh, uh, even though I got started late, time goes by, and I, I really haven't had a pushback. Uh, uh, I, I expected I might. Uh, I think uh, I think the history thing kind of saves me. Uh, I really study the history. I really I'm usually really on it. I have I surround myself with people that know uh, what's going on, and I will refer to them on certain subjects. You know, is this is this cool or is this right? Okay, what am I doing here? Uh, if there's something that's sacred, I leave it alone. You know, I mean, I don't step in it. I mean, I'm not saying that I I'm immune to that stuff. I could. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying so far, so far, uh, I've been unscathed by that. And the other thing is, is that I've always made it a point to let people understand that my whole reason for doing this is based on metaphor. Uh, American mythology. I, 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 I thought of it when I was a kid. I think of it uh, now when I started. Uh, if I was in Europe, you know, I like to tell people it would be just as fun for me to do Arthurian legends or or Greek, um, uh, and, uh, you know, types of uh, mythology. Being an American and seeing how the Native people have affected the way this country has developed for the good and the bad. I mean, you know, uh, uh, the their visual storyline is so ingrained in most people's psyche that as an artist, when I start pulling that stuff up, most people already have a story in the back of their mind of what's going on. And, and uh, to me, it's just, uh, it's, it's my, um, my mythology. If I was a Native American, I probably wouldn't use that word. I would probably more into the history part. Some of my uh, friends, like in the Cowboy Artists of America, that are, ca- real, that are actually real working cowboys, and there's still a few of them left, uh, they don't think of what they do as mythology. They're just recording their daily routine, you know? Right. And so, so, uh, but it's still, it's, that's part of the romance of being an artist. Uh, it's, it's, it's like, uh, it's like a, a great story or a fairy tale. Uh, the romance in it is, uh, is beautiful. And as an outsider, I can approach it that way. And so I'm looking at the broader picture for myself. I'm thinking in terms of, uh, uh, how does this relate to how I grew up? Uh, how does this how does this affect me? What are the metaphors that are, that are going to be best suited? Uh, the the in my culture, I'll say the, the uh, an older guy that's very powerful. Uh, you may see him in a bit with a business suit, you know, and uh, all clean cut, you know, with a tie and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it doesn't really give you a, a a visual of who he is. But you take that same character and you put a war bonnet on him and you dress him up with all the accoutrements of a life well lived with his exploit robe and all that. Most everybody gets the idea that, hey, that's a powerful man, you know, and he's got respect from his people and so forth. And so uh, the storytelling visually, um, my subject matter just is perfect for what goes on in my head. You know, and uh, that's 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 the whole thing in a nutshell. And maybe that's why I haven't gotten too much pushback. I think most guys realize that I'm not one of these uh, wannabe Indian characters who who just uh, is infatuated with the, with their their culture, and I want to be part of it. I'm, I'm really not part of it. I'm an outsider. I have You're a lot a of server. Yeah, I'm, I'm a deserver. I'm, I have I have all the respect in the world uh, for it, but I I'm worried. I'm more interested in my history and how it's affected me. You know, in this country, I don't know how many hundreds of. Uh, 
cities and stuff have Native American names. I mean, when I grew up, you know, I never realized that, you know, it's like, well, these people really, really have affected everything that we do. And, uh, you know, so that, that's, that's, that's the key to this whole thing. You know, I mean, I don't have to walk in their shoes to, uh, to understand that there's a lot we have in common. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, and yeah. I think also, you know, you touched on this, you said, it's my history, it's how it affected me. And I think to get the full story of that, I'd like to kind of go backwards and learn more about you because you do have this interesting story. It's not your typical artist story in any form no. or fashion. No, and, no. Uh, and that no. may give you, you know, a different view on your world. In fact, I'm sure it does give you a different uh, view of what it is to be an artist and how to approach it. So you grew up in California, is that right? Yeah, uh, I grew up, uh, you know, right on the beach, practically. I mean, that was my playground. It was a Tom Sawyer kind of thing, only instead of the Mississippi, it was the ocean. And uh, uh, I have a learning disability, which I think is important to talk about. A lot of artists have different types of learning disabilities. I'm dyslexic, uh, uh, and it affects uh, my, my ability to write and read. Uh, I, I can write and read, but not very well. Uh, Growing up, though, uh, I, I developed different habits uh, that helped me mitigate the issue of being embarrassed by the fact that I couldn't be a re regular student. And I learned to draw very early. And I've always had a really, uh, you know, I, I had a big imagination. I, you know, probably at the time I didn't realize how big it was because I didn't, you know, I just didn't know. But um, I had an interesting thing happen to me when I was about 15 years old. I had an opportunity to work for a famous hairstylist. And, and that, that's worth talking about because it was like a, a fluke. It was a total fluke. And uh, he had just done a photo shoot with Marilyn Monroe. It was one of her last photo shoots that they, they had done. And he had, was on the cover of uh, uh, like Life magazine. And he was, he was a real big you know, celebrity at the time. And he had all these celebrities that, that he did. And, uh, he had a syndicated column, and they needed somebody to do um, pencil drawings of his celebrity clientele. Uh, so uh, it wasn't art, and I knew it wasn't art at the time. What they wanted is a, yeah, like a human Xerox machine, someone who could just <laughs> do with these pencil renderings. But I got this job, and I was working in the studio drawing these these people that were, you know, the great, you know, like, you know, Arlene Dahl, Rita Hayworth, Polly Bergen, uh, all these, the old timers, you know, the ones that came back, you know, from the, you know, 40s and 50s. And uh, it was right across the street from the Whiskey of Go-Go, you know. This wow, is that's amazing. Oh, this is, the, this is the middle of the 60s, you know, and he had the salon on, on the top of uh, what was called the 9000 building, still there. Playboy Club went in right above him. You know, I mean, that's that's the location of it. So the whole my point of the story is is that it had nothing to do with really my merit. You know, I was too young to really know what I was doing. It was just one of those things. My brother got me the job, and uh, uh, I managed to pull it off. And it uh, it gave me a glimpse of of this kind of romantic uh, idea of being an artist. And so, are you like 15, 16 when this is? Yeah, doing? I'm 15. I'm 15 years old at the time. And what year would have this been? Uh, that would have been 1965. Yeah, 64. so the Vietnam yeah. War is really starting to uh, kick yeah, in. About this yeah, point. yeah. That, Vietnam War was like a rumor at that point. Uh, 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 it wasn't until about three years later that um, it was really, really on, you know, so. And, um, and so when you were doing these drawings, were you actually involved with the 
people there like the Rita Hayworths or were you? Uh, yeah, I, 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 yeah, to a certain degree, you know, I met most of those people. And oh, I, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've, even as a kid, I loved the history part. Things weren't going so good at my, my house, you know, so my parents did, probably didn't even know where I was at. <laughs> it was it was one of those those kinds of deals. And it was the hippie time, you know. It was, you know, my brother was a was a uh, hippie drug dealer, you know. Uh-huh. I mean, that, 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 not like he was a gangster. He was just a hippie, you know, and he was out. That's how he got me the job. These were his clients. And uh, What did your brother do? Uh, in terms of his, what, what was his, uh, his brilliant, uh, yeah, were, were, were his clients giving, he, he was their local pusher for them. Yeah. Well, that was basically, yeah. At the time though, you know, I hate to, I like to put that in a context because, yeah. because, uh, everybody was dealing drugs in the, in the sixties in Los Angeles. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, and, uh, he was pretty flamboyant and, uh, he, 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 he managed to meet these people and he suggested that, uh, he had a little brother that would, really do a good job for him and so i got this job and that gave me some insight into that type of a life where i got to meet certain people at the same time uh art center was had a program where they were doing uh, uh some of their best students could compete to get a time magazine cover as an example and uh he talked to me if, if that would be something i'd be interested in and it, it again it's something that i talk about now because i I, I I was offended actually when he asked me because these were my heroes, and I was too young. I didn't I didn't understand I didn't know how to do something that good, you know. And I understood the level. I was it was beautiful to have the opportunity, but I came away from that experience really understanding that uh, uh, how this how the the idea of creating art and having a destination for your art has a lot to do with your environment and who you know and where you're going and how you're motivated. Yeah, uh, that's definitely stuck with you for sure. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, it really did and I and part that I usually bring that up partly too because people ask so so from the time I was 19 to the time I was 41 I did I did no art. And people said, "Really? Wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense." Uh I was so um taken by that my circumstances at the time and art was so important to me that I was afraid that I I, I needed to get myself ready before I could feel comfortable getting into that. Uh, Sue and I met when we were teenagers. That was the other part of it. We were, you know, she, we got married. uh, I was 19 and she was 18. And, you know, of course we knew each other since, you know, we were 16, 17, Mm. but you know, one of those kind of deals. And, uh, uh congratulations. Fa- yeah, 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 no, I know. I know. Yeah. We're going on what 50, you know, 52 years now. Um, uh, my father was an entrepreneur. one of those guys, he sold everything, vacuum cleaners, everything. He was also, uh, had, had a lot of drinking problems and stuff, but he taught me how to get up in the morning and go make money. And he never worked for anybody. And so he died real when I was, when I was about 17 years old and, oh. uh, that had yeah. to be really traumatic to, to have. Uh, you know, yeah, you know, it, it was, it was, it was uh, another thing is, is important to talk about because um, he was on such a downward spiral that him, it, it sounds weird for me to say this, but um, him dying kind of saved me. Um, I, all of a sudden, um, my mother had already left. She had, she had moved to Arizona and, uh, my brother was out on the street doing his dealing and shit. And my father was uh, had a lot of problems. And when he died, uh, my life opened up. 
Uh, and Sue and I were able to do what we were, we were doing. I, I was able to dream and figure out what I wanted to do. And, and uh, we went off and uh, uh, we started a business, a construction company of sorts. Mm-hmm. Again, we were still, we we're just teenagers at the time. We moved to Arizona on the Colorado River and I got into mobile home accessories and things like that. And it, so how did you deal with, because you're right in that sweet zone for the Vietnam War. I assume yeah. you, you know, yeah, yeah. And somehow. Well, that- well, well, you know, what happened was, is I, when I moved to Arizona, uh, there was a little lag time uh, getting myself uh, uh, registered again. And by that time, uh, the draft board uh, has sent me a notice saying, okay, you're up, you know, and it literally the day that I was going to go in for my physical Sue turns up, she's pregnant. And I thought, well, wow, this, how's this going to work? I contact, I contacted the draft board and they said, hang tight. Uh, We're, we're not sure if we're going to be taking uh, fathers at this time. They reclassified me. That was, that was the end of my, my Vietnam uh, thing. And was that like 67? Yeah, it had to be in 67. Yeah, 67. Yeah. 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 And did your brother have to go through that at all? He, 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 well, again, remember, my brother was a drug dealer. Yeah. He'll take <laughs> he drug had, dealers too. No, he joined. He, he, he actually joined, and, uh, and on some level, uh, they discharged him. I see. And, and I don't think it was, I don't think it was a good discharge either. Yeah. We, we, we never talked about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but that had to be, uh, it had to be a massive amount of stress. I mean, you're a young father. Vietnam is brewing, which you may have to go yeah. to. Your own father has passed away. Yeah. And now you're living in, in Arizona. Uh, we had a great business and it was going well. I was making more money than I'd ever made before. I was happy. Uh, I thought if they, hell, if I'm drafted, fine, I'm going to go do it. You know, that's, yeah. I'm just going to let it happen. I had a pretty good uh, philosophy on life. And when I didn't have to go, um, I had a little regret because I had friends that were in Vietnam. Not all of them came home. Mm. And so I always, so I always had that little bit of a, a issue, but as time has gone by, I realized the odds, there's a good chance I wouldn't have survived it. Right. And yeah, you know, and so, uh, you know, I, I started to think, hell, I'm a pretty lucky guy, man. I mean, things, uh, things have always kind of gone my way. And, uh, my dad and I reconciled, uh, like 10 years after he died. You know, I started thinking about what a great guy he was, and I started remembering all all the lessons he taught me. Mm-hmm. I wasn't mad at him anymore. And and uh, uh, to this day, when I teach a workshop or whatever, half of what my students are getting are lessons my father taught me. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with being an entrepreneur. You you know, in order to be an artist and, and have a destination for your work, you need to understand um, where where it's where it's going to fit. In the scheme of things, uh, what is it that people need? Why they need it? What, what's the point that that, that they're going to uh, enjoy and and be willing? Uh, you know, when they could go out and buy an automobile, or they can buy a painting. You know, I mean, it's like, why are they doing this? And so, um, my father always uh, talked to me about the psychology of why people do what they do, and. Uh, that always helped me understand things like that and, and where I could, I could out, outline my strengths. I, I, it was real clear for me because for, for a guy that 
really uh, couldn't write. I still don't write, really, to be honest with you. I, I, I rely on my little wheelchair from my mind, my little iPhone, you know, and that, the speech to text stuff, it just saves me. You know, Sue used to take care of all that. Now, now I can do it with my little machines. And, <laughs> and, and it's like, well, life is great. You know, as bad as things get, it's amazing these innovations keep coming out and coming yeah. out. Yeah, you know, but, um, you know, at that time when I was young like that, uh, I had a lot of energy. Uh, and when I, we started our awning business, I knew that what I lacked in, metal, in my mental capacity and in my, whether I was a good salesman or I knew how to do it, uh, when it was 120 degrees out, uh, I knew that being 19, I could go out and survive and, and work out in that awful, those awful conditions that people would hire me, you know, they would buy the, my awnings and let me put them up for them. Yeah. And it turned out to be a great business. I mean, we, we, had, we did very well with that. And where were that, you living? Where was this? It was Parker, Arizona at the time. Parker. Oh yeah, that's so hot. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was nice. We bought a place right on the Colorado river. We had a boat, you know, we, you know, it was, it wasn't bad. And then we moved to Prescott in 72. I started a mobile home sales lot here in, in Prescott. Um, uh, that got a little bit uh, sideways with me. I had a, a fellow that kind of helped me out in the beginning and uh, that didn't work out. He had kind of a mental problem and, and uh, I ended up, uh, I ended up uh, in a year in business and then um, business went belly up. I went back into the awning business did did fantastic and then learned what the irs was all about and the irs uh, uh gave me a gigantic bill and i said how could that be i lost money one year now i made it i said can't we average this out nope can't do that <laughs> and uh, again it was one of those things where uh sue and i are sitting together and we're 22 years old now and i said man i says imagine how bad this would be if we were 32 or 42 you know <laughs> hell, hell we're kids you know we don't we can we can overcome this and uh uh, yeah, but it, it, it had been really good because we had uh, we were investing in real estate and that kind of stuff. And I lost everything. I mean, I lost everything. I mean, we were and we had to start completely over. But it was a great time to start over. And you were how old? Were you 22 uh, at that time? I, 20, 20, 22. Uh, both yeah. our children were born at that time. And uh, 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 Prescott was an easy place to make a living. And uh I went back in the awning business. Uh, we we bought a mobile home park. Uh, we just we started doing commercial development. I got in the mini storage business. Uh, That's a good business. Oh, it turned out to be a great business. Yeah. I was like one of the first guys in it, and uh, I ended up doing it for other people too. I would I would have buy you know help them buy their property and get them set up in the business and stuff. And it was you know it's just one of those things. Always going to be a great artist. Always going to uh, that was my fantasy. I loved the idea of of being a great artist. I was, thought I was getting better, even though I didn't work at it. I, it's funny because I, I, the idea of practicing something uh, to me was uh, kind of strange uh, because it, it had no destination. Uh, uh, it was like a sacred thing. And I thought I'm going to get to it one of these days. And so during that period that you're doing the awning business from really basically 18 on for 20 years, are you making and producing art for yourself, drawing, no. Or doing no, anything. no, no. That's my point. That um, someone asked me if you were on a desert island, you know that old that old uh, question: Would you do your art or not do your art? Art is a way of communicating. And it's like, what am I going to do? Talk to myself? You know? I mean, it's like I don't see. I don't see it quite like that. Mm. I don't. I don't see it like that. Uh, I 
I was 41 years old and I was helping a friend out who had had a great career and he was an alcoholic and you know and I'm a recovering alcoholic too by the way I haven't had a drink in 35 years congratulations that was, on that. that yeah thank you that was part of my mix as well but yeah. uh he he started he started telling me about the if only disease you know if only I would have done this or if only I would have done that right and I thought to myself oh my god you know I'm at that age now where in about four years, I'll be, I'll be halfway to 50, you know? So, uh, we had done some pretty good stuff. We had money in the bank. Uh, I saw an opportunity, uh, where one of my big projects, uh, was put on hold for three months. And I thought today's the day I start my art career. Mm. And, and it was just like that. It happened like a switch. I just threw a switch. And you think it's that guy that you saw his life ebbing out. And, and, and yours was, you could see it for you if you weren't. Yeah. Yeah. And my father died too at, at this, at that same age. And I always thought that's a great starting point. I'll start at the same age my father was when he died. And I had nothing to lose at that point. I, I had everything to lose if I didn't do, if I didn't uh, really uh, give, you know, give birth to my dream. When you, once you flesh out a dream and if it doesn't work, you don't have a dream anymore. You see, it's gone. So it was a scary proposition, but at that point, it was a lot scarier not to do it. So the key was is that I started thinking from the practical point of view. Um, rather than be a regular artist, why don't I be a guy who makes sort of arty products, crafty things, mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll do sculpture. I'll do resin sculptures, and I'll do there'll be wall hangings. <laughs> You know, you know, and Sue goes, what are you doing? I thought you were painting or that you were drawing. And I said, no, I'm going to do sculpture. And, and, uh, and I told her why. I said, because you can make additions of these things, you know. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't going to um, put myself in a situation where uh, people that had worked all their life and, and suffered through the, that starving artist syndrome, uh, I felt like uh, out of respect for them, I wasn't going to call myself a real artist yet. As it turned out, people started to say, wow, you know, you're, you, you've got something there. And I thought, really, I do. I mean, I don't need a gimmick. I don't need to be, I don't need to make these wall hangs. I can actually create real sculptures. And, and that's, that's kind of what happened. I happened to also land in Prescott. And Prescott, Arizona is the center of the universe for cowboy sculpture. Mm -hmm. you know, this is George Fippen land, you know, Joe Beeler, all those guys. And uh, uh, Ray Swanson, uh, uh, saw me, uh, I was down on the square and he says, you know, he says, uh, he says, I want you to apply to the Cowboy Artists of America. And, and he gave me, gave me some pointers on what I should do. And, and it was incredible. Well, know? there must've been a little, there had to be a gap there because you had to have made sculpture for a while before Ray said, okay, you're good enough to do this. I was, um, let's see, it was, it, it was not, uh, 90, uh, nine, 92, uh, to and I joined the Cowboy Arts of America in 2001. Yeah, so so for nine years, your 10,000 hours, yeah, you yeah. Were making art. You were, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the 10,000 hour thing is, I think, is is critical. You know, that's the other thing that I like to remind people in my story. Um, when I started my career without doing the art, I was way better than I was when I was 19, and I hadn't been practicing. What I had been doing is, is I had been, I'd been designing this stuff in my head and I had been working out these issues. See, I think my learning disability, the dyslexic part 
uh, gives me a visualization that, other, that a lot of people don't have. That's right. It does. Uh, sure. I, and so I, I, I was able to put things into context. And I've also, I've always been interested in design. Everything is about design, uh, you know, shapes. Uh, and how do you, do, how you compose your shapes? I've always loved music, especially, you know, classical and that kind of stuff. So to me, I'm a, I, I, I think in terms of Rachmaninoff, I, I take my lessons from composers and I can, and I feel what they're feeling and I can, I do that visually. The storytelling is the next level. It's sort of like you're writing, it's, you're writing uh, the music and then you're also adding the lyrics. The fact that it's actually a, uh, literally about something as a narrative is the lyrics. But the lyrics are generally not as important as the abstract design. They, they're just there and, and uh, the key is, is that they don't get in the way, see? And, and, and I think that's the key to that whole thing. You know, we, we, have, we have natural rhythm in, in us, naturally. We don't need to be taught that. But you have to understand how that works. Uh, and, you know, like in sculpture, there's two shapes, as an example. Uh, there's, there's boxes and, and, and there's circles. Uh, they each have a, invoke a feeling. And when you're using them in sculpture, people don't maybe think of it literally, but they can feel it. Mm. You know, women uh, are circles. Everything comes from the egg. Everything comes from the earth. Uh, women have soft, round edges. Clouds are feminine. Angles, on the other hand, have a tendency to be masculine. And uh, I, I will say, for instance, a person isn't taught to smile. I think that gives proof to what I'm saying is, is that we're genetically uh, geared to that. We understand that automatically we don't have to be taught that a baby crawling up on a on a couch and if music is playing the kid just learned how to stand and now already he's dancing mm -hmm. uh, no one taught him how to do that it's just the rhythms inside of us and so we use that to communicate with yeah, so it's the interesting. it's interesting on the navajo uh you know tribe in the world their culture is the first smile of a child is celebrated yeah and the person yeah. who sees that smile yeah. Then yeah, yeah. a party for that, you know, yeah, that family. Yeah. It's a great honor to have that. Yeah, yeah. And of course, again, that's my other connection, I feel, to the Native Americans. You know, especially having two daughters. Uh, you know, I got it when I started studying the Apache and the puberty rite and the, the sunrise dance and all these things that were happening and how things that are celebrated in that culture and in my culture, it's more a moment of fear. I was, I was very fearful when my, my little girls were becoming of age, you know, and, and it's, it's, and it's a fun, that's a fun way of borrowing or kind of overlapping, you know, and saying, yeah, this is, this is how we all feel inside. We don't always verbalize it the way we should maybe. Yeah. So you've clearly been able to capture that in your sculptures. And so let me just ask, when you're starting these first sculptures that you're doing, what are they of? What's the subject matter that you've chosen? In it, it, I, I, uh, they're, they're exactly the same thing I'm doing right now. Wow. Now that's interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, uh, my first sculpture was called Man's Prelude to Honor. And it was a war dance. You know, that was where the title came from. Prelude to the war, to the war basically. And... Uh, in my mind, it was a kind of a uh, cheesy sort of a 
not cheesy, but more, uh, um, it wasn't real profound. It was a, basically a, a, a guy doing a war dance. Yeah, more stereotypic. More stereotypic, yeah. And uh, uh, I did a wall relief of this thing. And then uh, that also was the subject for my first bronze. And uh, Dave McGarry was uh, going pretty hot in those days. And uh, I thought, you know, this guy is a, is a real business guy. You know, I mean, he knows, he knows the market and all that kind of stuff. And of course, I had already had a caveat in the back of my head that I'm not taking myself that, that damn serious as an artist. I, I'm just thinking, boy, I'm glad I'm not a contractor anymore. You know, <laughs> now, now I'm doing this stuff. And I, and I, I, I leaned on, on, his, uh, on what, what he had accomplished a little bit. I could see what he was doing. Um, he was very basically uh, uh, into the history. And uh, he was getting kind of a bum rap, I thought. Some people uh, would complain, you know, that his work looks stiff and all of that. And I thought, well, you know, it, it, it was really, the emphasis was on history. Mm. And, I th- and I thought if he had been doing historic dolls, people wouldn't have, wouldn't, have, wouldn't have said anything negative about it. It's just that they didn't have a sculptural feel to them necessarily. Mm-hmm. And so my little revelation was, is why don't I kind of borrow his little detail thing and, and give him some sculptural uh, give him some, uh, you know, a little bit of movement, a little bit of, of softness, a little bit of, of feeling in, in him. And let's see if I can do get the detail in there as sort of like seasoning on the top. Uh, in an artistic point of view, uh, one of the first rules that most people will learn when they start studying art is that uh, a detail is the kiss of death, you know, because it slows the work down. But if you can add detail in where it becomes a counterpoint to something else, then it becomes part of your composition. And I thought, you know, that could be an interesting way to um, get recognized. I have, I could, if I could handle both of those. And in the beginning, I did the polychrome, not very long, but I did actually put paint on my work for a, mm-hmm. for a couple of years. And then I realized that um, um, I wasn't being true to the sculpture part because I'm using color to, to kind of inform the shape of the piece. And I thought, you know, if I can develop a patina that sort of kind of, is natural, but still offers colors. So I designed a patina that turned out really well. And uh, I also found a guy, a Pat Neur, who, you know, is brilliant, of course, and he's still doing all my work for me. And, and another one of those serendipitous things in life that, uh, you know, has made things really work. That's an important com, uh, part of making a sculpture. People don't realize is the patina and working with a, fo- a foundry and the involvement of the foundry. Maybe you could talk just a little bit about that because it really is critical yeah, to yeah. sculpture. Yeah, yeah. You know, in the, in the beginning when I was doing resin casting, I was doing it all myself. I, I, I made the molds. I did the resins. I did all of that. So now I got to go to a foundry. And so I, tell my, I, was, I would tell my students that the main purpose of the foundry is, is to ruin your work. And I was being a little bit facetious, but I was also saying that it's good for you to understand that that's what they're going to do. So what you have to do is you have to mitigate that by adding uh, safeguards. And because I had done resin castings, I, what I started doing is I made resin models of all my work and I sent it with the molds. And then they would call me and they'd say, we need you to come in and look at this. And I go, no, I have a rule. I don't go to the foundry. But, what I, but I'll tell you, if, it, if you make it look like my resin, we'll all be happy. You, I don't need to tell you to make it look like that. And if for whatever reason it can't, 
well then then that mean, means that I now I need to find another way around my uh, my technique so that I can find that little spot. Uh, as it turns out, uh, a foundry can cast anything you can make. It's just they'll just charge you for it. <coughs> you know that's all. So I, so as I'm working, I'm thinking, okay, that's going to cost me ten bucks. Okay, here's an extra fifty bucks here or whatever, you know. And but it always has to do with the art. Uh, the, generally speaking, the simpler something is, the easier it is to get get to the eloquent part. But as you start making it complicated, if it can still be eloquent, well, then it starts to get depth. There's something else that's happening. And eloquence is the big word. You know, to me, that's my number one word. That's as an artist, what it is is you're doing. You know, coming from the kid that's doing these copying photographs for for a famous hairstylist. And I knew I wasn't an artist in those days. I, I could just draw and I could copy stuff. You know, it was a great, I was a great craft. But to actually create an image. And so what makes, what's the difference? Um, you know, I love that, that famous uh, thing that Lincoln talked about, where he wrote a letter and he said to his friend, he says, I apologize in advance for making this, this letter long, so long. I didn't have time to make it brief. <laughs> and and, and when people think about it, they go, you know, the hardest thing in the world is, is to start editing stuff down. Yeah, that's very true, whether it's writing or whether it's uh, art. Yeah, um, you know, one of the old tricks that I was taught a long time ago was find a painting you really like and then cover a part of it up. It should, it should fall apart a little bit. It should weaken it. Um, if it doesn't weaken it, then it's carrying a burden that it doesn't need to carry. That thing you're covering shouldn't even be there. So, mm -hmm. you know, so it, it, that's it always a good test. Uh, and especially people are a little surprised because not only my sculptures, but my paintings, I have a tendency to look like there's a lot of stuff going on. But I always have a counterbalance for it. Everything that, everything that needs to be added. And as a history artist, sometimes I have no choice. I, as things have to be included. And so, this, but I, I'll either adjust my story a little bit, you know, if I've got something that's going to get in the way of the design, or I find a counterbalance to it. But the bottom line is, is the romance and the mood of the piece has to be all at once. The silhouette of the work, especially in sculpture, of course, has to be right there for you. You have to, you have to feel it right away. And then the detail should be secondary. The detail will come in later. People can kind of find little things that maybe they didn't, hadn't seen before. And I think that that's a basic one oh, art 101, um, you know, and you hear it over and over again, people that are just getting started, uh, they don't realize that when they're leading with their craftsmanship and they can really copy something well, it's usually the mark of an amateur, uh, someone who can really do something very photographic. Oh, it looks just like a photograph. A lot of the times it's the mark of, a, of, a, of an amateur yeah. because they've got the craftsmanship and they got, but they haven't, they don't have anything to say yet. They're not composing anything yet. It's like Burt Baccarat learns to play the piano, but he but he can't write a song. You know? yeah. <laughs> He's got the tool, but he doesn't have the he doesn't have the important part. I would yeah. think it would be harder to tell the story in a sculpture than it is in the painting. Is it, do you find that or are well, it, yeah, it, it's it would be in some ways. Yes, it depends on what level you're at. A sculpture or painting, you're you're creating an illusion of atmosphere, all right, and, and depth, you know, and shape. 
and it gives you uh, gives you a a, for, a a a front, a middle, and a background, and in which you can you have many different layers that you can start to develop a storyline. Uh, with sculpture, you're relying on uh, uh, your viewer's own memory and emotional feeling about something. Mm. The, the story that, that they're playing out, which brings us to the next important art lesson. And that is the art isn't for you, it's for the viewer. And they have their story and don't get in the way of their story. You know, one of the examples I like is when you come out of the movie, you'll hear people saying, yeah, that was a great movie. And then someone will always say, yeah, the book was better though. Yeah. <laughs> and in other words, they're saying, I like my pictures better than the pictures I saw on the screen. They already have that feeling. Um, uh, you know, in, in, in poetry, you know, like Shakespeare was a good example. There was this, you know, like uh, Romeo and Juliet, that, that great line where she comes out on the balcony and he looks up and he says, oh, she touches her, touches her face. The next line is to be a glove. And people don't need any more words because they already understand you got two teenagers who can't be with each other. They're from opposing families. And what he just said was, is I'll I would give up my life to be with her right now. And, and um, there was nothing more than to be said. It, it, and the reason it can be so eloquent is, is because the person reading the, the story already has the backstory. They already understand all that. So when I do a sculpture, I don't really think about the background. I think that there's something that, that relates, especially in history, where they've seen it somewhere and they felt it somewhere. You know, if I'm doing a feminine piece, it, 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 if it reminds me of my daughter, it's going to remind them of their daughter. If it's a little child, it's going to be grandchildren. If, it, if it's masculine and the guy looks like a real ass kicker, everybody's seen that ass kicker before. You know, they, they, they can feel it. Yeah. You know, so you don't need a whole lot of stuff. You just want to get as eloquent as you can and do the best depiction you can to boil it down to where it really, really sings to, to, to the viewer. And they do. I, I can tell you they do, especially, you know, your little girls are just so, um, you know, I don't even know what the word is, but they touch you. There's a sensibility yeah. there that goes right to the heart. You know, thank you. Because, you know, it's, uh, I've got two daughters, I've got grandchildren now, and now I've got a great uh, granddaughter, you know, isn't that something? And so it's, so those are the things that I feel and I know. So you, you're taking your, how you feel about something, the way Shakespeare did or any poet, and you're, you're looking for that, how do you get the, your audience to feel what you're feeling when you're doing it? And right. that's, that comes back to those symbols, so you see those feelings. Yeah, well, you've definitely have done it. There's no doubt about it. I mean, your sculpture and your paintings both are unique and you can, you can hear your voice. I, I can see your voice, I can hear it when I see them. We know it's a Coleman piece. Um, and now I, I get it even more, I understand it more. It's that you're, you're looking for that emotional um, release that others can interpret how they want to in them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the key. Someone told me a long time ago, um, uh, they were asking me about a piece and uh, it was one of my first pieces and I had a real long story to go with it. And he said, you know, he said, you got to be careful about that. And I go, what's that mean? He goes, their story might be better than yours. You know, don't step on their story. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, you know, gosh, that was a good point. That was a good point. Because, uh, you know, that's what you're trying to do is you're trying to chime in on their on, on where they come from. I do have a question. 
You, one of the things that you have done that I think will be, uh, will live on for, for a long time, hopefully uh, for become an important part of American art history is your Bodmer Catlin series. That yeah, you did. yeah. I mean, that's a yeah. unique idea. Yeah, uh, yeah. And you executed it. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about it for those people who don't know about Bodmer and Catlin, you know, these yeah, are yeah, yeah. artists yeah. that came to yeah, America. Yeah. Yeah, um, uh, let's see, I'm trying to remember when I did the first one. Uh, Bodmer and Catlin uh, were were a couple of important characters in Western art that were not completely uh, hidden, but because of the movie business and that kind of stuff, people didn't think, didn't chime in with that. They were a little, a little bit early. And... Uh, they, uh, the Western art that developed from the Catlin and Bodmer, uh, I thought would be interesting because of the 18, early 1830s. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, now they become more stereotypical. We're talking Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark, 1804. Uh, Bodmer, Catlin, 1833, 1834. Um, uh, Bodmer is uh, a European. Uh, Catlin is a, a New Yorker. Uh, they, coincidentally, were both working at the same time. Uh, both had kind of the same mission. Bodmer was working for a, like an anthropologist. You know, uh, they didn't have cameras in those days, so he he brought his watercolors and documented these guys. Catlin uh, was interested in doing the like. Uh, this fellow Peel had created a a, a, a museum of curiosities uh, a, a, in New York, and he thought, well, yeah, that'd be kind of cool. I'll do that with with the Native Americans, and I will bring back images of these guys. And, and, you know, I'll bring back some artifacts and people will see where these guys have been and what they're doing. And, uh, that'll, and, and they're, they're not going to be there real, real soon, real quick. And I thought, gosh, you know, this is something that would be a very interesting thing to um, bring into my, my world. The problem that I had when I first thought of it, though, is, is that I had, I'd only started sculpting. And I thought, uh, it sounds a little cheesy uh, using paintings, even though they're portraits. You know, both of them weren't really uh, into the, the the beautiful gesture necessarily. They were mostly interested in capturing these men that stood before them. And that was another thing that was pretty crazy about this is that they had had these people had gone to Washington, you know, and and had uh, their portraits done. But prior to that, nobody had gone out and painted them where they stood. So you're yeah. really get, getting an image of these guys, who these guys really were. And I thought, I'd love to do sculptures of these portraits. And I thought, I'm gonna, I'll know when the time comes because I'll finally get to a place where someone's not going to assume that I'm plagiarizing someone else's art. And so by the time I started, I'd already had, an, I had a name for myself. And I made it a real strong point and to, to explain to everybody what I was doing, that these were portraits and I'm doing portraits of portraits. I'm not trying to take anything away, not trying to add anything. I just thought it'd be fun to flesh out these, these images at, in sculptures. And then I used not only their paintings, but I also used their records and uh, the documentation of what they're, what they're wearing. Part of what the stuff I have in my studio right now is our recreations of some of these guys. I had a, I had Matatopa's uh, whole, our forebears, whole outfit made. And, uh, 
and they're they're uh, they're all right there in museums, and they're they're uh, documented. And uh, uh, I did it in three dimension, and I so I did five Catlins and five Bodmers. I I worked seven years on the project. I did my other art along with that, and, and um, it was a home run. People loved it. My collectors loved it. Um, the set sold out right away, and uh, it's, and people people signed up for the whole sets. And as I finished them, they they went to their new home, and, and yeah. it was great. It was great, you know. And I had people say, "Yeah, you need to do that again." <laughs> I go, "No, I can't do that again. That was that was that was it. That was the only the opportunity to do something like that." Did you know you had a home run when you finished your first one? Or no, 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 no. The first one, the first one, I was with the Alterman Gallery in Santa Fe, and I remember I took it into the gallery, and uh, he and he, they, yeah, that's pretty cool. And like, what's the feedback? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, okay, shoot. You know, and then uh, uh, that same piece went into an auction without anybody knowing what it was or who it was or whatever. And, it, and the auction wasn't that great. And uh, I thought, well, okay, that's fine. But I'd already had some uh, people interested in the whole set. So, I mean, I was pretty committed. And then it started building steam. And before I knew it, uh, it just took off. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the value of the piece took off as well. I mean, it became a real, you know, real, real groundbreaker in terms of, of something that is collectible, but I always, I always would remind people or explain to them how I viewed it. I viewed it as, as a, as something that's historic. I thought of them as art, of course, but not as much as my other work. I thought of it. My my obligation was was to get a little bit on the tight side and really create the detail, to so I could really show what Catlin and Bodmer were really interested in showing at the time, and. Uh, most people don't, you know, they don't think like that. They just liked them. And that was, you know, and I, and I was proud that, that I was able to, to get the, the gesture, the way, you know, these, they did look like real people. I made sure that I understood how tall they were. Uh, there's a, a little Spaniard was like my height, you know, five, six. And then you had big soldier who was like, you know, six, eight, you know, <laughs> you know, so, you know, I want them to be real people. And, uh, and uh, that's what they got. And I thought I'm doing it as I'm doing a service by, by, uh, uh, not necessarily a service, but I'm not, I'm not, there's nothing degrading about uh, fleshing out something that important. And then the, uh, another thing that happened that was really exciting to me is uh, we were out on a, uh, a museum tour with the National Sculpture Society and our, our, um, a guy that takes care of our books and stuff, our banker, so to speak, was along. And he was looking at a life-size I had done of forebears, or two curls it was, yeah. And uh, he says, you know, he says, uh, I have him. And I said, I don't think you do. I said, I know where they all went, and I don't, you don't have one of those. And he goes, no, I don't mean that. He says, I've got Catlin. And it turned out he was the president of, of uh, Green, uh, Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. And Catlin is buried there. Mm -hmm. And so, so he said, you know, we got to talking. He says, you know the story, and I says, yeah, I know. He had a he had a problem with his in laws, basically. Uh, his wife died fairly young, and his in laws blamed him for partly because of her death. And uh, when he died, uh, it was already set out that he was going to be buried in the family plot, but 
they were still mad at him and they stored his body for a year. And they finally did bury him. Uh, they didn't mark his grave. So here you got this circle of grave in, a, in, a, in the family plot of his wife's family and an unmarked grave. In 1964, there was an outfit called the uh, Friends of the Westerners put a stone on his grave. So that was Catlin Steele. So um, this guy says, why don't we give him a, fit, a fitting marker? What can we do? And I thought, well, you know, he met a guy called Black Moccasin. And uh, when a Black Moccasin uh, was you know, like over 100 years old, so they, they reckoned at the time, he said, I was the second chief of the Hidatsas when Lewis and Clark came up the river. And he said, I was the first one to greet them when they came up and they landed. And I said, I'd like to do, I'd like to do Black Moccasin greeting Lewis and Clark. And we'll put it on his, we'll put it at his gravesite, and that's what we did. And so, so I've got I've got my sculpture there greeting people as they come into Catlin's grave, and that was that was like one of the biggest honors I'd had. You know, you know, it was to, to be part part of that. And we when we had the unveiling, we had Catlin's descendants. Wow. You know, we had Native American. We did it on his birthday, so we had a birthday cake for him. And it was, we had a nice celebration, you know, it was a real fun, real fun thing to do. Uh, that's amazing. Have you ever, you know, I guess uh, Catlin's stuff ended up, 600 of his pieces ended up at the American Indian Museum in Smithsonian when yeah. they were donated yeah. by Harrison. Yeah. Who, you know, ended yeah. up with all his collection because, yeah, know, Catlin kind of didn't, he didn't do so well financially at the end there. Have no, you ever, no. No. I was going to say, have you ever had your pieces in the, uh, American uh, Smithsonian with Catlin's pieces? Uh, no, I, no, I never have I, that I know of. No, I don't. I don't know. No. Um, yeah, that'd be kind a of wonderful that, thing too. That, yeah, that, that would be fun. Yeah, yeah, that would be fun. Uh, yeah, he, a lot of those are uh, were repainted. He lost a lot of his collection in a fire, and uh, again, he was he didn't manage things very well, and that was you know, part of the artist thing, you know, he was brilliant on one level and not mm -hmm. so, so smooth on the other. He was a great writer though. He, a lot of his stories were really, really fun to, to read. When so. you're at that cemetery and you've done the sculpture and you have the descendants there, that has to be kind of a powerful moment for you, I would think. Well, it is a very powerful moment. Um, it makes me feel uh, on one level, uh, you know, who am I to, to be the guy who is doing uh, doing this to their for their descendants. So I have a lot of reverence to the whole idea, uh, and I and I understand that uh, uh, you know his you know of course it's just one of those things. It's you know he died in in 1874, so uh, that's been a long time ago. And uh, uh, so, uh, but it, I did. I, it was very powerful, and I had, had such a connection because of what I had done in terms of my sculpture. And I still use that period. That's my favorite period. The Upper Missouri tribes uh, are, are the most interesting. And uh, just because they're, they weren't used in the movies too much, they look different to, to our modern eye. They, don't, they, they have a different feel to them. They're more exotic looking. And it was a fairly short period of time. That's the other part about history that people don't understand. You know, that, uh, you know when the, you know, the Hudson Bay Company came in and they started needing to make uh, products that they could use as currency so they could pay for their furs. They started making all these cool things. And uh, this all happened, you know, in the late 1700s, you know, early 1800s. And, and uh, the, the way the Native Americans looked changed. They, they started looking, they looked different. And they, they also became more mobile because the horse came along and, 
and they were more nomadic. And so they started trading against with each other and stuff. And it wasn't until the, we, we, the Western movies that we started seeing that this, these, these iconic images that are, they're stereotypes. And uh, so that, that's also part of it that I thought was kind of fun is, is I can talk about Lewis and Clark and I know I have visuals that goes along with that because, you know, Clark was still alive when those guys were working and, and he's, he helped them out with, you know, where to go to see these people. And, and so you can, you can really get a good idea of what they will still look like, say, 30 years later. And, and so we have an idea of that. Well, you really, again, in a way, you're actually meeting the person just like Catelyn did. When you spend yeah. that intense yeah. amount of time. Yes, yeah, research, yeah. I mean, you are in yeah. the presence of that individual. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. Catelyn was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was a real character. On one of his trips to Europe, he he, he brought along a, a grizzly bear in a cage, and one of the, one of the deckhands got too close to the cage, and the damn bear reached out and took his nose off with his claw. And the way Catelyn wrote about it was really something. You know, it was like you know, he didn't have any sympathy for the man. You know? Just that he was kind of what a dumb guy. You know, but but it, but it, it's true. Uh, the, I mean, this was a very colorful time, and these guys were. Um, what they were doing was just amazing. And, and uh, it was very dangerous too, obviously. Not everybody welcomed them. You know, it was, you know, and he, you know, when, you know, so there was a lot of things that, uh, but they were all very well documented. And that was the part, uh, uh, you know, Bodmer with his boss, Maximilian, you know, who wrote, who wrote volumes literally, you know, on his journeys in the West. And those documents are so detailed and important. Uh, and then Catlin did kind of the same thing. All that being said, I'm interested in being an artist, and and I'm I love the story, and I love to tie in the emotion to the story. But the, for me, the story always leads. The detail is like a given. The detail is always for for the respect of the subject. And your subject matters always are changing, and it's interesting to see, um, yeah. you know, both male and female and children and you've got a big show coming up uh at yeah. legacy and you know, this this will air probably the week right after the show yeah. but there may yeah. or may not be anything left <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. your last yeah. show at legacy i'm pretty sure was a complete sellout of all your paintings and all your sculpture and maybe we could talk a little bit about that as well as i would like to talk a little bit about your paintings because you have really come on to the art market world as a world-class painter now and that's an unusual thing to be able to do is to switch gears and and be you know you may be better known for your paintings at some point in time than you are your sculptures i don't know we don't know yet that 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 story's not written well when i started painting that was my goal i started as a painter i didn't think of sculpture and mm -hmm. then i i did what uh, remington did uh, remington wrote a letter to his brother and said oh my goodness uh I never realized I was good at this. You know, he was a painter and then he started sculpting, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, and I thought to myself, you know, maybe people are wired differently. I, I don't know. But to me, imagery in my head, you're solving almost the same problems. Uh, people say, well, God, how do you know how to do that? And I said, well, I, I think most artists will tell you that they know what doesn't look good. And they may not know it right away, but eventually they will. Your brain will find, will find, awkward the awkward parts of things and so not to be too cavalier about it but uh, for me sculpture and painting feels the same to me 
I'm looking for the same thing. I'm looking for things to be exemplified in ways that um, would normally tear something down and then save it, make it work. You know, it's that goosebump factor. You know, in, you know, in movies, you see it all the time. It's like, uh, you know. You see it you in know. art too, I guarantee you. Oh, oh, oh no, you do. You do. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, it's just that you know, like music is lineal, you know, it's like Rhapsody in Blue. I, when I heard that when I was a kid, I just, I, I, I didn't know what I heard. It took me years to figure it out. I was just about 10 years old when I first heard it. And it, because it's lineal, it, 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 build, it can build and then it can grab you. And, 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 and with visual, it, it, it's a little bit different because it's, it, it, it's, it, but, you, but it's the same thing. It's all about art appreciation, right? You, you have to learn what, you, what you're looking for. Most people like things because they like them, but they haven't really studied them. I have quite a few collectors who, could tell me a few things about how art works, of course. But then there's a lot of people that buy art that, that they just, something about it resonates with them and they don't need to go too far with it. But like you said, you've been around this whole thing for so many years and you've seen so many different things on different levels that, uh, you know, I'm, you know, you, you obviously understand what we're talking about here. I'm still learning though. That's the great thing. Well, to be teachable is the, is the ultimate goal of anybody, right? Especially in, in these kinds of, terms uh metaphorically when you have something that you're so passionate about when you get to a point where you're not teachable anymore you're you're literally done mm. you have no business uh, doing it anymore it's done uh i'm so people say what are you going to do i, I well, i'm very excited well what are you going to do uh, well I, I i i know i'm going to be excited about it because i know it's going to be built on the, th the thing i did before the thing i did before that and so you have a series of steps that you're taking. It's like climbing a staircase and your view keeps changing. You know, I'm really, you know, going back to my show that this is like um, when, when Brad asked me if I would do this show again, you know, just to give a little background, you know, the first show was four, was four years ago. Um, he had never done a one man show that was so complete. And I said, let's make it, a, I said, I don't want to do a show unless it's really about something. And I said, what I'd like to do is I'd like to have 20 brand new pieces and I will mix my sculptures and my paintings together. And let, I wanted, let's use some of the, the, the things we've learned about the marketing part too. You know, the Cowboy Artist of America created this uh, kind of compress and release kind of scenario. They, those old stories about people, couldn't get in the door fast enough and they'd run up to the painting and fight over who gets the red dot on the painting and stuff. And, and, and they, they held a lot of that, that, that kind of uh, magic and, and enthusiasm by allowing uh, everybody to build at the door before they opened it up. And they made it more civilized, of course, by having draw boxes and stuff. But there was such, there was such anticipation. And so in this case, they had just finished the Museum of the West down, down the street from the gallery. And uh, I was, had a show, I had a retrospect there going on at the same time, which was like a, really a gift considering I'm doing this, this other thing. I was able to give a lecture before the, my show, gave a tour of my collection at the museum. And we had everybody come in and when they got to the gallery, the gallery was upstairs. It kind of reminds me, Frank Lloyd Wright, he has a thing about uh, compressed and release. You know, if you have this beautiful room, make it a little bit hard to get into, you know, <laughs> and, you, and everything expands out. 
And that's what was happening. People were expanding out. And it was literally the perfect storm. And so we had, we, the place was packed. And within a couple hours, all my editions had sold, all the bronzes, I mean, the, the paintings. Mm -hmm. and all. Now I say that, and it's hard to say it without sounding like I'm bragging, but the fact is, is that if I would have taken some of those paintings and they would have just been hanging on the gallery wall, I think they would have sold, but it would have been over a period of time. The, the, the anticipation that Christmas morning psychology wouldn't have been there. That thing about people just really having fun with this. My dad used to call it permission to buy. You know, they know they want it, but now do they have permission? And, yeah. and of course, during the day, I'd already given everybody an idea that, you know, maybe, maybe it's okay because, you know, maybe I'm this guy who, you know, I've got my show over here and, I'm, and I can talk to you and I've given you a lecture on, on what, what I'm about. Everybody felt comfortable. And it was, and they felt it was a safe bet. Uh, this year, we're doing the same thing. Uh, another twenty pieces. Uh, but we have the we have the other amazing thing that happened. Uh, that's uh, that. Uh, hopefully, it will be the only time in history that we've had to go through a pandemic, and that adds a whole nother dynamic to this whole thing. Uh, so. Uh, I, I can, I'm not uh, too, I'm not thinking about the Frank Lloyd Wright uh, analogy th these days, you know, <laughs> I'm not thinking don't about, a, <laughs> I don't, I'm not thinking of a packed room necessarily. I know people are coming to the show, but, but again, it, you know, we're, we all have to be safe with the, and, and, and responsible for, for, for this, for what's going on. Um, it, it, but what it did do is, is that it gave me an opportunity to do what I think is my best work. It, it pushed me to create a body of work because this pandemic came into play right after I started my show. I've been working on my show for about a year and a half. Mm. And uh, I, personally for me, uh, it became more about hitting, hitting my goal, 20 new pieces. And these aren't small pieces either. These are all big pieces. I got my, uh, most of my paintings are, are good size. Yeah, they I, are. I got a draw. I got one drawing that's uh, five and a half feet tall. Biggest drawing I've ever done. Wow. You know, and we got a sculpture that's seven and a half feet. Now it's upstairs. Mm -hmm. It looks like a fish ship in a bottle because people are going to say, "How, how did how did, we, how did you guys get that up there? Uh -huh. How did you do that?" <laughs> and what we did was, is it, it, it's it's back to foundry stuff. I I I have a great relationship with with my my guys that that work on my pieces, and we took part, we took it in pieces, mm. and we we uh, it, it's blind bolted. You can't see the seams. And we took it apart and we put it back together up in the room. And when the show's over, we'll to go, it'll go back to the foundry and it'll be conventionally welded back together. But uh, th that's, that's part of been the fun of it to me is, is the goal is just to have, oh, let me feel where I'm at. You know, I'm, I'm 71 years old now. And uh, uh, it's like, this is, this is going to inform me on where I go from here. What's my next step? So I'm excited this time for reasons that go way beyond my first show. Financially, and I know that as far as how the show sells and all that, I know it's going to be successful. It just isn't going to be that gigantic bang that happened last year or the last time I did it. But you've been working on this for a year and a half, the show? year and a half, yeah. And the other thing I did, too, is, is part of the compressing, compression part of it is, is that I pulled out of all my other shows. Uh, to uh, and that creates a sense of uh, it creates a void. I did um, I, the cowboy artist had a show that I did. I took two pieces to it, 
I've been emeritus for five years from the Cowboy Artist, but they, they moved to a new location and I wanted to support them. So we, I took two pieces and then they had a miniature show at the Museum of the West in Scottsdale and I put a miniature in. But while I've been working on the show, those are the only, that's the only pieces I've done. I've only done three pieces outside of this. And I think that that's the other part of, I think what people and collectors love is, is they love the feeling that um, what they're seeing is, is unique and it's for whatever it is, it, it's, it hasn't, it's new. And, uh, and, and if they don't put their name in on it, <laughs> you know, uh, I get it, guarantee it isn't going, it isn't staying in the gallery, you know, <laughs> No, I guarantee you that all no, the no. will sell, all the sculptures it, will sell. I, I've always had this feeling about, you know, art kind of like bread, you know, it, it always, it's always best the day it's baked, you know, there's something about it. And that sounds a little bit funny, but um, it, it, I think it's important to understand that you have a destination for something and it needs to, it needs to be, um, it needs to be headed and massaged to that, that, that end in a way that's respectful of everybody. Uh, uh, if it's, if it, if the painting doesn't work, then it doesn't deserve to be out in the world. And sometimes they don't work and you don't know it until you put it in front of somebody. Uh, I'm perfectly willing to take a piece and throw it away if I have to, you know, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take something that, that, that was a mistake or, and, and what I mean, what I'm trying to say is, is that you, you don't always know if you really hit the mark completely and for posterity and for who I am, uh, uh, it's a beautiful thing to be, one of the gifts you give yourself when you get to be 70 and if you've worked hard and you've made some money in your life is you don't have to work for money anymore. And, uh, and that, that gives you that, that gives me an opportunity to, to see the world from a different perspective. Freedom. Uh, well, the, yeah. Yeah. I, I, freedom is important, but I, I also love the obligation. I love, I love the relationship that I've built with people. And I, I love that they're interested in what I might do next. Uh, and, uh, but I know that doesn't go on forever. I know at some point there's a place where you, uh, so you start to trail off and, uh, you know, you hope that uh, you have other aspects of, of what you've learned that you can use uh, for that trailing off process. Most of the people that have been my mentors, uh, that doesn't happen. You know, Howard Turfting always comes to mind. You know, Howard probably hasn't been working too much lately, but up until, you know, he was, you know, and he's past 90 now. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's, he's been working right along, you know, and I was looking at his work in his late eighties and hell, he's just, he's right on it, you know, yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, so it because, you know, why? Cause he cares, you know, and, and he's, yeah. and, and he's learned a lot and he's, he, he understands what he's doing. And, I, I would, you know, I've always told people I want to be Howard Turfing when I grow up and the older I get Howard's about 20 years older than me. And I, and I think, you know, okay, you know, that's, that's a great, I, I'll always, as long as Howard's there, I know I've got a, I got a shot at, at growing and being, getting better. Well, there's one painting in this show that really spoke to me, which is that night spirit painting. Oh yeah. 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 There's thank something, you. Um, off the charts about that painting. Mm, thank you. And um, maybe you could just talk about it a little bit because it just really did resonate with me uh, tremendously. Yeah, well, um, I, it, that painting came out of um, uh, another painting I did of 1876, which is a sculpture I had done 
several years ago, and I've always wanted to do a painting of it. It's got the crazy horse gull and setting bull. And I have a, a friend historian who was telling me about a crazy horse had a, sort of an affinity to uh, kestrels. And that he, and there was evidence that just to say that he probably had a, 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 a headpiece that was made from a kestrel. And I thought, I'm going to include that in my 1876 painting because I didn't on my sculpture. So I found a, I found a, a kestrel mount, you know, you're gearing the, the protected birds, so you just don't go out and shoot a kestrel. <laughs> but uh, I happened to be in Europe and I found this, I found a mount that was done in the 50s. And so I sent it to my guy and he created a, a, a headpiece for, you know, a, 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 a headpiece for this thing. And uh, I used it in my painting. And then I thought, well, I'm going to do a, I'm going to do a sculpture too of, of Crazy Horse. And uh, I started putting together what the sculpture would look like. And that evolved into, you know, I think I'd like to do a painting, but I'd already done a painting of Crazy Horse in my, my, uh, in my big painting. So this essentially is Crazy Horse, but I didn't want to name it Crazy Horse. Mm. And the other thing too about Crazy Horse is, is that he's, he, is, he does fall into that sacred category. I mean, you don't want to overdo it with Crazy Horse because he's, he's, he's very special. And, um, no, of course, nobody knows what he looks like. He, he was he's very pure. He never had his picture taken. Uh, he's a real, you know, he's a real, he goes beyond just being a hero to the Native people. You know, he's almost, you know, he goes beyond that. And so I'm, I'm really careful about that. So I'm thinking, okay, I've got my painting with Crazy Horse in it. I did the sculpture. Um, so this painting essentially is based on that idea but uh, the the hawk and the kestrel are part of um, uh, the spirits that that bring gifts and uh, the night spirit especially. And uh, my natural love for the, the 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 paintings that I do is things that are emerging out of the abyss, things that are the mystery that surrounds that. The more I can do with that stuff, the more I like it. And that, that one really exemplifies that. The, the character is just kind of merging out and he's got that kestrel. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things. It's lightning in a bottle. You know, you're just kind of yeah. playing around with these ideas and then finally you get everything going. And, you know, and the model I'm using also is the right age. You know, he's, you know, in his late twenties and uh, it's harder to do younger models. And uh, uh, yeah, and then so... Do you use a model? Did you use a model for that one? On yeah, that? I did. I, I did. I use I use models coming and uh, I use them in and out of what I'm doing. Uh, sculpture. I usually start without a model. I bring a model in to kind of help me kind of clean up some of the the details and stuff. Uh, painting it goes back and forth. It depends on what I'm trying to accomplish. Um, the the thing about photography is that. Uh, it's one of the best tools there is, but it also, like any great tool, it will destroy your work. Mm. You know, it's like any tool. It's like in, with sculpture, uh, uh, calipers are really nice. You, you know, we go into the we go into a workshop and we got a model and everybody's running up to the model with their measure, taking their measurements, and 
I have to remind everybody that art isn't going to happen though until you finally get it in your head. <laughs> you know, you know what's what size everything should be so you can forget about it. You know, you can't keep thinking about stuff like that. So there's something that happens when in certain areas that that has a certain magic to it. Uh, and the key is you don't always see it, and, and that's the other part of it too. Uh, but that one, that that particular painting, though, that was that was a pretty special one, I think. My my daughter, when she saw that, she she yeah. she said, "Yeah, that that's that that's pretty pretty cool." There's something but, about the mysticism that you can feel, and yeah, you know the way he's, you know, he's doing his own thing. You can see some kind of deep emotion. At least, again, that's what yeah. painting yeah. works, right? When you feel yeah. that, yeah, I definitely yeah, felt that in that painting. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So that that's the key, you know. Uh, I, I'm I'm kind of in in both worlds. So some of my collectors uh, love the um, the details and the subjects that I'm painting, and they don't necessarily want it to be obscured in any way. They don't the mystery, you know. I, I'm thinking like an old Fritz Lang movie, you know, uh, you know, like uh, Metropolis or something, where mm. you got this great spooky shadowy characters kind of merging out and i love that feeling and they're going oh yeah i, I like that too but now i i want to see you i want to see all that stuff you know and so <laughs> i'm kind of i'm kind of going back and forth you know i give a little bit of for, for that and a little bit of for this you know it's like one of my paintings is of montetopa uh, yeah. uh and uh, i had done one of him in my normal style where he's kind of in, he's He's very moody. They're emerging out of the darkness. And I thought, oh, I'll do the same character, only this time he's outside. And he's really more the way Catlin would have painted him, or Bodner, because he's, he's full sun, full sun, you know. It's a, of course, the sun's going down, so he's got that really nice magic hour glow on him and stuff. But, uh, and, and that's fun, too. That's a real challenge to bring in a whole different, different way, of, way of dealing with it. Do you but find the, either one, do you find one media more difficult to work with than the other? No, I really don't. Um, again, it depends what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, there's two aspects. There's always the, the gut feeling and, and getting the rhythm down. And then there's the, uh, how, do you, how do you completely realize what your, what your vision was without destroying what you started? Because that's usually the fear, both on both accounts. Both accounts, you're usually you get it down, and then you start to re refine it. And through the refining process, you start to destroy it. Mm. And so, as you can kind of, if it gets better, it's like, wow, that's really amazing. And so, part of what I've been able to do, I think, and I've one of the first things I'll tell people that need help is, is don't be an advocate for your ego. Be an advocate for the art. And how you do that is, is you find trusted people who will tell you about how they feel or how they see things. And I have a, pe a few people like that around me that, that will tell me. Yeah, you your know, wife, hey, I'm sure, is one of them. Well, well, well she go, she's beyond. Yeah, she's beyond. She's, I think she's a better artist than I am, although I never seen her do art before. Mm -hmm. and, and it's real. It's true. I mean, she Yeah, she, sure. I mean, she she's been around it the whole time with you, and she's oh, seen She yeah, has a feeling about it that she, and she'll know if there's one little thing that's off. And when she likes something, God, I know it's like a, it's like I know I got a home run because she even even then if she doesn't say anything I know it's okay. <laughs> uh -huh. She's very careful. Uh -huh. She never pays me a compliment unless she loves it. I mean yeah. she's got to love it, and then she'll say, "Yeah, that's good. I like it." You know, but normally she doesn't do that. She expects a certain thing to work, and if there's something that isn't working, it ain't it ain't leaving the house. 
it ain't yeah. gone it ain't going anywhere um eric peterson is the other one he's he's he does all my patination he's he's uh, also does all the chasing see when i the way i work with the foundry is the foundering does uh does all the uh the castings but all the parts come to, to eric and his people and they put it all together and uh he has a, 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 I think, a standard that's at least as high or higher than mine on how things are supposed to be uh, set up. And with my paintings, I I have him look at them before as I'm, you know, getting getting close to being finished. And he always will find something that I hadn't seen or thought. Well, what about this? Maybe this might be. Would you be thought about doing a little bit of this or that? And mm -hmm. generally speaking, there's little parts that that yeah, you know, it opens up another another deal. You know, I'd like to explain to people, you know, that um, our brains are set up to um, notice things right away. And then we don't notice them. It starts, they start to shut down. Uh, the sense of smell, your olfactor is the most obvious. Most people know what a bad smell is. They also know if, they, if you're in, in a bad area with a bad smell for very long, your brain turns it out, tunes it out. Same thing, I got a neighbor with a barking dog, you know, he barks and, and it bugs the hell out of me. And then I get saying, he stops barking. Well, I realized that I've just tuned him out. Mm -hmm. my, my, my eye does the same damn thing. And I know that I've got about five minutes that I'm really on it. And after five minutes, I need to find an angle. You know, that's why, you know, that you see the mirror in the background, people look at the mirror, you know, I'll, I'll turn my painting upside down. I'll, uh, you know, it, so the point is, is that you have to, you, everybody that wants to accomplish something that's very special has it in them to do it but you can't get to it directly you have to find ways around it it's like these things are locked up in little sp spots in your head you know it's the time of your time of day i'm way smarter certain times of the day than i am other times mm. of the day mm -hmm. you know and, and i think when people are doing something that they're really passionate about and they they really want to be as excellent as they can they they go in at knowing that they're not completely um adept they know that they're not fully hatched on those some areas and they have to find ways to, to find it you know it just doesn't just happen you have to really pry it out sometimes you're clearly prying a lot of it out i mean yeah. that show i looked at it all the works and it's amazing the paintings are you know it's it's a great body of work there was obviously a lot of energy effort and thought that went into those paintings and if people want to see it at legacy how long will that show be up? It opens on the 14th, correct, of November? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, that, it's a great question. I wish I had an answer. Uh, at least a couple of weeks, okay? Maybe a little longer. Yeah. 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 So. The, yeah. The idea, the nice thing is, is it's upstairs. So it, so it isn't in co competition with the other, with the rest of his gallery. So it's, the upstairs is just, uh, just my show. And finally, you know, You've had this very interesting circuitous life to get to art. And I'm sure there's lots of people listening or watching that goes, okay, you know, that's great for John, but what about me? How can I get there? Do you have any advice to them? I mean, to, to make the path? I mean, you're gifted. I mean, you're clearly gifted. You're one of the best, you know, artists working in the West. No, forget the West. You're one of the best artists working, period. Um, so you have that, but you also clearly put in an amazing amount of effort to get there. So what do you tell those people? Well, first of all, um, your last last statement is the, is the, the one that most people don't want to hear. <laughs> uh, it's incredibly hard, hard work. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and to be passionate about something takes a, has a, it takes a lot of courage to actually do it because to flesh out a dream is, is, to, is to throw your dream away if it doesn't work, right? It's terrifying. You've got to find a motivation. You have to find a motivation. You have to find a, a point. But see, the thing is, too, is I believe in modeling other people. I believe in finding other people that are in the business of something that you feel you would like to be a part of. And then start taking an honest inventory of what they have that you might have as well. You know, the analogy for a guy that's five and a half feet tall is that uh, obviously sports wasn't a big thing for me, you know, especially like basketball, you know. So I play to my strengths. I took an inventory of everything I'm strong at. What am I really good at? Turned out the things that I'm not being able to read very well or to write turned out to be a strength. You know, who knew? You know, they're, they're finding out that dyslexia gives people the crazy powers in other regards. <laughs> you know, it's like the savant thing, you know. And so my point is, though, is, is that people are, are afraid. Uh, if you, I would say study motivational uh, uh, material and learn the psychology of how people think. It's a fact that people are more afraid of success than failure. Mm. That's a fact. And why? Because we have a limit that we put on ourselves. Who knows when it starts? You know, I tell people you're born perfect. You know, when you're a baby, you're just a blade of grass. The universe said, likes you just as much as he did that perfect blade of grass. How come all of a sudden now you're all screwed up and timid and afraid, afraid of shit, you know, and, and, and just, you know, disgruntled? What happened? Why not just go back to that? You see, my father died, you know, basically he took his life. And uh, uh, I, that again was a real uh, uh, education for me because I know he didn't have to. And because I too uh, have a, a, am an alcoholic, recovering alcoholic, um, I remember when I decided to uh, commit ritualistic uh, suicide, metaphoric suicide, I absolved myself of everything that concerned me. Someone once said, you know, uh, if you're a procrastinator, it means you're a perfectionist. And if you're a perfectionist, um, you, you're, you, nothing's going to be good enough. So what you do is you put it off. So what you should do instead is, is make a list of everything you're going to do and do it that moment. And if you're not going to do it that moment, consider it done and forget about it. Because the space it holds in your head is like carrying a weight around, dragging something around. And you, you're, in other words, you were born, like the baby, you were born with everything you, you always needed. And so you already always had it. You know, I, I always had the gift. If I've got a gift, I always had it. The thing I didn't have is I was carrying a burden. When I let my burden go, I didn't need to do what my dad did. See, at the same age my dad died, I, I started, I, I decided to commit to my dream. And I found a back door, a little bit of a back door. It wasn't as scary, you know, because I had some money. But at the same time, I knew that um, if I committed and I did the work, because I, you know, Sue and I have always, we've always been a business for ourselves. Uh, you know, I know what hard work is. There's no such thing as lazy. There's only unmotivated. If, you're, if you find yourself hard, having a trouble getting up and going to work, it's because you're in the wrong job. You, you've got to be excited about what you do. Even if it's, the work is, is boring, Maybe the, maybe the money is exciting, or maybe the people you meet are exciting. There's always something to be alive for. And that's the key. That's the key to everything. 
and it has nothing to do with how long you live. You know, it's that old bumper sticker thing. It's not how, how long your road is, it's how wide it is. You know, when you think about in those kinds of terms, we live in an age where uh, I live more in a month maybe than my great grandparents did in their whole life in terms of the, being able to communicate with the rest of the world. What's there not to love? Even in this moment, you know, with the COVID, this is still the best time ever to be alive. Now, it's easy for me to say, of course, because I've been in my bubble, you know, building on my show, of course. And I get that. And I know that this is hard, but there's a lot of things that are hard, but we, we have to focus on what, what, we, what we have inside us, the gifts that, that we already have. And then, and then don't, you don't need a good work ethic. You, you, you develop a passion. And I work on my art the same way I worked on getting drunk. Okay, I'm, I'm addicted to it. I can't, uh-huh. I, can't, I can't help it. <laughs> well, you know what? It's clear to me that you weren't afraid of success, that you embraced it. And it's always been clear to me that you have a passion for what you do. I mean, from the first day I ever met you, I could see it. It comes out in you and it boils over like a pot on a on a hot stove so you know i think you know that kind of information for other artists whether it's art or any other field is you got to have the passion and by god john coleman you got the passion no thank you yeah, yeah thank you yes well yeah, find I'm, your passion yeah i'm excited to see the show and uh, we'll find out the dates from Brad too. And for those people who are listening to this, I encourage you also to look at the YouTube video of this because we're going to put up some of the paintings and sculptures that will be in that show. Is there ways too that people can find you if uh, uh, website, Instagram, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, I'm on Instagram, uh, Facebook, uh, Google my name, John Coleman Art, uh, and all my stuff comes up. Uh, uh, tomorrow, Eric and I are going to go do a... Uh, a, a video of the show. I'm going to do a, a walk through a tour, uh, and so that'll be on YouTube uh, or Facebook. I don't know how they you, you, yeah. one of those. Yeah, you know. So uh, yeah, there's there's lots of ways of seeing the show. Yeah. yeah, John, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it, and thank you for doing what you do. I think you're an important yeah. component of uh, especially yeah. Western arts. There's no doubt you you're, you've made a mark that very few people have and you've lived a good life and thank you and as you said you ain't done yet baby no no i'm not not not, not. still having to have a lot of fun yeah Yeah. good for you yeah 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 all right well thank you again and uh i look forward to going up i'm probably going to go up and try to see the show now you've inspired me so much i want to go see it and make it when all the people are there but uh, no 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 you don't need to do that yeah yeah. (laughs) just just take a walk through mark that'd be great i I appreciate you yeah, right. be good for you. Give my Thank best you. to Sue. I appreciate it. I, I will. All right. Thank you very much, Mark. John Coleman on the Ardila Diaries, a wonderful interview. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Talk. All right. Bye-bye.